Today is Wednesday. It's March 29th, 2023, and it's 2.42 in the afternoon. Hi, I'm John Williams. This is the Mincing Rascals podcast. We record it on Wednesdays at WGN Radio, and starting real soon, it's back Saturday nights at 8 o'clock on WGN as the sports schedule eases a little for us at the radio station. You can hear me weekdays on WGN from 10 to 2. I'm Austin Berg from the Illinois Policy Institute, and you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. And I'm Eric Zorn, the publisher of the Picayune Sentinel newspaper, uh, online newspaper, I guess, and uh, also an undecided voter in Chicago. Yeah, we'll talk about the latest poll, which has Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis even. There was one that showed them within the margin of error, but the last couple showed Vallis with a slight edge, maybe a point, maybe two and a half points, but now... A dead heat, huh, Eric? Is that the latest poll you're talking about? Yeah, it's very hard to to tease out what these polls mean, but it, it, it's very close. And it's, I mean, I guess every election is a turnout election, but this one seems like it's really going to be a turnout election that if Brandon Johnson can get his voters to the polls, he'll win. And if Paul Vallis can get his voters to the polls, he's going to win. And uh, if you just, I mean, that's why these polls are so uh, difficult to read because People will answer the phone. I don't know who who answers the phone. They don't recognize the number. Certainly, I don't. Uh, but the people who are answering the phone and giving these answers are these people. They say they're likely voters. But isn't that the kind of thing you would tell a stranger? But I mean, who's going to tell a stranger like, no, nah, I'm I'm not a voter. I answered that's one of these of- uh, honestly a couple weeks ago it, 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 before the um, runoff, Eric. I took a phone call from an anonymous thing and answered honestly about my preferences. Took about five minutes. The other thing that really good pollsters will do is they can actually match you to a voter file and say, this person is a voter. We know they're a voter because they're registered and they, you know, Oh, but nice. In the last few elections. That, but oh. That's kind of creepy, though. I don't want them to know who I am. I mean, <laughs> there's, a, there's a sense they're calling randomly and they're just treating me like a random person. If they say, oh, we're talking to Eric Zorn and we're asking him what he was going to vote for. They know for, what kind that, of underarm deodorant you use, Eric. It's all out there now. And what kind of underarm deodorant you decided not to use, all the ones you <laughs> <More> considered. <importantly. laughs> yeah. right, Dem- well, it is true that there's no privacy anymore, but... but uh, I'm, I don't answer the phone. First of all, I'm getting a lot of calls and a lot of texts these days from the campaigns, and I ignore all of them. When I see a number I don't recognize, I, I send it right to voicemail, and they never leave a message. So I don't know who these people are. And I don't know who it is. I guess they're people like John Williams are answering their phone when they don't recognize the number. Like, I don't usually you? do that, but I did. You know, I've got a few phone calls out to agencies or companies lately that aren't in my contacts list. So every now and then you think, oh, is this the people that are helping my mom with the thing? It could be a contractor. Uh, yeah. So then I go, all right, hello. And they go, oh, this will only take five. Ah, damn. But in general, my attitude about customer service calls or surveys like that is in the long run, it will make the company better, the service better. The politics better. Oh. I don't know. I I think oh, that's quit. my level of participation. We got to quit talking about Brandon. He's on the phone now. He's, hey, handsome. <laughs> Everybody scramble. Better Brandon is here. They say Brandon is better. This is the better Brandon. Oh, uh, you know what? No, uh, no so that the reference to Brandon Johnson. We're just talking about that. There's a commercial on right now, and it's Brandon Johnson, and it starts something like, Hi, I'm Brandon Johnson, the real Democrat. I think that's the way he puts it. And I kind of <laughs> chuckled when I heard that. I thought, okay. And then and then the rest of the commercial was positive. You know, I care about community, and I, I like puppies, and it was just a real nice positive ad. But So I, I, I kind of 
appreciated the subtle dig without going dark. It was it was a good line. Uh, guys, we just had a reference to, as Eric said, this election is going to depend on who gets the voters to turn out. Vallis will get the older voters and needs them to show up. Brandon Johnson needs more younger voters to show up. Are Hispanics, Austin, the swing group in this election? It could be, but you could also say that black voters are the swing group. I think the conventional wisdom is that if Paul Vallis gets a quarter of the black vote, it's going to be very, very hard for Brandon Johnson to win. So the latest poll uh, from WGN, from Emerson, which is generally a really good pollster, showed Vallis was up five or six points. In the racial breakdown, it really showed Hispanics were breaking hard for Vallis. So uh, 57% of Hispanic or Latino voters supported Vallis versus just 30% for Brandon Johnson. And I think that comes down to a couple things. I think the number one thing is public safety. Um, Hispanic attitudes in Chicago towards public safety lean much more heavily toward a more quote-unquote tough-on-crime approach. Uh, and I think those people are generally breaking for Vallis. Uh, and then another interesting one that uh, another very interesting part of this poll was that obviously, as every single poll has shown the last year in Chicago, public safety is the number one issue running away. And when asked, who do you trust more to handle crime in Chicago, Paul Vallis or Brandon Johnson, Vallis, 54 percent, Brandon Johnson, 38 percent. So mm-hmm. there's a really big gap between who people trust on the number one issue. And then the final thing on the, the Hispanic sort of favorables is that. One interesting thing not covered a lot in the data is that Hispanic attitudes towards the Chicago Teachers Union, um, they really do not like, as a whole, the Chicago Teachers Union. It's basically two to one unfavorable attitudes towards the CTU. Uh, That is Brandon Johnson's biggest backer. It's his his employer. Um, They are very involved in the campaign. How much is that actually determining their vote? I don't know, but it's public safety and education. I think those two things are really breaking for Vallis with with Hispanic voters. Well, then who's voting for Johnson? Who who, who likes him? I mean, how is it close then? What, it's it's white progressives and uh, a lar- and a majority of black voters. So Brandon Johnson is is running away with the black vote right now. Um, so the 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 wisdom is Paul Vallis is right now, according to that WGN poll. About a quarter of black voters are behind Vallis. Obviously, he is touting uh, endorsements from Jesse White, from Sophia King, who Alderman Sophia King, who came out this week in favor of uh, Paul Vallis. Yeah, Jay Maul, um, Bobby Rush. I mean, he is really heavily in TV ads now playing up. These are black Democrats and they support Paul Vallis. And that is because he knows he really has to yeah. hold on to some share of that vote. <laughs> What was the movie that Vallis said was his favorite movie? Black Klansman. Is that what he said? Yeah, and I thought, all right, that's a little heavy-handed, but go ahead and play that card. Did he really say that? I thought that was a joke. I thought that was an Onion story. That's hilarious. Nah, we're we're telling that as the truth. Wow. Wow, he did. He said Paul Vallis tells the City Club Lunch in one of his favorite movies is Black I did not see that. Okay. Of, of all the Spike Lee movies today, yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> bruh, do the right thing was right there. Like, At least he uh, didn't say Chirac. <laughs> right. Oh yeah, that yeah. would. Oh, Thank you. Gosh, that would have been even worse. Uh, I was. Was anyone on the panel surprised as I was by the Sophia King endorsement? And she is the chair of the city council's Progressive Caucus, and. I, I was su- surprised that J. Ma Green stayed, uh, didn't stay on the sidelines. And I was really surprised that 
that uh, so Alvin King came out for Vallis. I didn't quite uh, that took me aback. I was wondering if that may influence some. I mean, I, I I do know for a fact that it's influenced a couple of people who I talked to about this race who said, okay, that does it for me. I'm voting for Vallis. Uh, which I which I was surprised about, but but uh, anybody else, or is I am I alone on an island here? I'm a little surprised that she endorsed anybody. I thought that she was going to be one of the sit-outs. So yeah, that I was a little surprised to see that. I'm not totally surprised that it was Vallis. I'm just I, I didn't think it really really benefited her to even to even endorse anybody at this point. I mean, I think when they're weighing the the cost benefit analysis, I wonder how much they're weighing that stuff because. Some of these people endorse them. Like you could just you could just say nothing and see what happens. Like you know. Well, that's the J- yeah. it's the JB Pritzker strategy. Clearly, he's not going to endorse yeah. anybody. And so far, Mayor Lightfoot has not endorsed anyone. And I don't imagine she's going to. She's um, not going to. Why not? Um, I think she hates them both. <laughs> that's my that's my theory. Is like well, she, I can she, see how she'd be a little sour on both of them. I mean, she wanted to be in the game, and she's not because of them. So, I get that. But if she wanted to be a player, if she wanted to be a kingmaker, maybe she could. She real. I think if she came out strongly for for Johnson, she d- did very well in the in, on black voters during the uh, during the first round, and I, I think that she could definitely take people off the fence. Probably either way. Uh, but mm-hmm. maybe she wants. Maybe she's still thinking down the line. She's what about 61, 60 years old, something like that. She might be thinking that after four <laughs> years, people will people wow. will have some some Lori Lightfoot nostalgia, and they'll and they'll come back. Like she'll be like the Dick Nixon of Chicago. What is she going to do? Is she going to go back to politics? <laughs> is she going to go back to the law firm? I wonder what she's going to how she's going to pay her bills. Corporate job somewhere, probably. I'm going to say book contract. Oh. Do you think she's? Do you think she's a big enough national figure, though? So I feel like that was different for Rahm Emanuel, who sort of had a national profile prior to becoming mayor, and he was able to go back and he had a lot of stuff in private industry. I don't know if Lori Lightfoot is is nationally. I don't have a good sense of it, right? Because we're in this bubble, but it seems a bit different. I I think she is nationally known. I I believe just off the feedback I get from people who aren't from Chicago, she's more popular nationally. Than she is locally. <laughs> yeah. uh, like people will question me, like, why would they vote out Lori Lightfoot? We thought she was so funny. We thought she was so cool. What yeah. happened? So, so, I, so did we. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was with so, a couple of college buddies this week, Brandon. Uh, this weekend, one lives in Kentucky and has for since we graduated college years ago. The other one's in New Jersey and has lived there since we graduated college years ago. They both looked at me and said, "What's up with your mayor?" I mean, they knew Lori Lightfoot and were curious about how divisive she's been. And I and, and they're not Fox News guys, but I know Fox loves to portray J.B. Pritzker and Lori Lightfoot as radical. I don't know where they were getting it, to be honest with you. Mainstream media. But they, they sure had a, a bad view of Lori Lightfoot, but they were very interested in Lori, who Lori Lightfoot is. Uh, for That's what, what I thought was interesting. The, the right-wing media coverage of the the first round of the election was so bizarre because there was sort of like a look, Chicago kicked out, you know, woke Lori Lightfoot and her pro crime policies. And they're like, do you know, like Brandon Johnson's way more woke than <laughs> Lori Lightfoot. <laughs> and he's about, he could be mayor in a week. Like that doesn't make any sense at all. A billion uh, so, dollars. Yeah. Yeah. And so Sophia King, that endorsement, I think it's surprising just because of her. She's the chair of the Progressive Caucus within city council. So it's not like she does not have bona fides there. But I, I think 
for city council endorsements, those are 99% about power and positioning and maybe like 1% about principle because you are going to go have, you're going to have to work with these, with the next mayor. They're going to have a massive hand in deciding who is committee chairs and and a massive hand in deciding what's going on in your ward. So I, I think when you look at aldermanic endorsements, a lot of times it's them licking their finger and putting it to the wind and saying, who do I think is going to be the next mayor? And that's that's who they're picking. Well, but both Roderick Sawyer and Sophia King are not going to be on the city council. They both gave up their seats to run for mayor and they both endorsed Dallas. So I don't know what they're they may have a much longer game here that, you know, where they're they're looking at four years right. from now, they're looking at statewide office or county office. Well, they may just, uh, there may be some other things. You know, Sophia King's husband is a pretty powerful uh, lawyer. So mm-hmm. maybe she's just thinking, well, if Dallas gets elected, there's going to be more business thrown his way. I don't know. So well, all she, of these anomalous even... endorsements that you're talking about last week, Eric, you used the word anomalous for Vallis. You don't think there's any shenanigans going on here, do you? You don't think there's some story that's going to be written after the election, do you, Mr. Zorn? I don't really. Uh, I, I think it, it's possible that Jamal Green has been given a nod and a wink that he might have some sort of a position in the Vallis administration. It's possible that Sophia can't. I mean, it's you never know when favors get repaid, whether they were, whether there's a quid pro quo or whether it's just somebody being nice to a supporter. I, I, but I don't think so. I don't think there's anything scandalous. It's, you know, maybe I'm naive about that. But. Oh, Eric, you are so naive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll say I do think that there's a chance you might get some stories out there post-campaign. I've heard murmurings about payments from the Vallis campaign to campaigns and to media entities in the city. Um, I've heard rumblings about the Chewy Garcia campaign and offer that was made to them. Obviously, Garcia decided not to go with Vallis and went with uh, Brandon Johnson. So I'm curious what does come out. Um, I've been doing some calls and sourcing, trying to get stuff together myself. Um, but there's definitely some talk and some rumors out there that there's been some some dealings. Are they unethical? De- I mean, the question I have would be, are they, are they, is it just the sort of horse trading that you do, or is it actually unethical? Yeah. Well, that's that's really the, the question. So. That's really the question, yeah. And I think some of it is just typical politics, right? I, I, I think deals happen all the time in politics, right? Especially when it comes to endorsements, when it comes to former campaigns, stuff like that, maybe, you know, offers to pay off campaign debt, things like that. I think that's just that goes. I think that's an across the board thing. Whether people think it's ethical or not, I, you know. I, but I, I don't think it's bizarre um, for that to happen. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Johnson campaign is doing similar things as well. I just that's, I think that's a Chicago politics thing and a national politics thing too. Well, speaking of horse trading in Chicago, Austin, are, do you think that anything will come out of the Comed Four trial, which is underway, or the Madigan trial that will follow that? Do you think we'll ever get a better definition, or that we'll see better behavior uh, as to what involves lobbying and what involves illegal activity? Better behavior, it's hard to be optimistic about because you've you've seen things that are so cartoonish and people being dragged through the mud, rightfully so, during these corruption trials and totally embarrassed and totally shamed. And yet it still keeps happening. Illinois has had one public corruption conviction on average per week for the last 40 years. So, uh, you know, indictments are not changing corruption. They're capturing corrupt actors, but they're not changing the culture of corruption. That is going to require a lot more institutional reform at the city level 
and at the state level. But I think some of the reporting speaks to that culture. Um, and this trial, which I thought has been really well reported by the Tribune, um, some of the things that have come out are just are unbelievable and would be unbelievable in any other state but Illinois. So there's there is a, a nugget buried at the latest uh, in at, at the bottom of the latest story from Ray Long and Jason Meisner, I believe, from Chicago Tribune about the ComEd Four trial. And just for background, this trial is basically for political players and players at ComEd placing Madigan allies in no work subcontractor jobs with ComEd. And basically, the FBI was able to wiretap wiretap this guy or use this guy as a mole, Fidel Marquez. And he recorded all of these conversations with Mike McLean, who is Madigan's consigliere, as well as the CEO of, of ComEd at the time. And uncovered in this are things like the fact that Mike Madigan's uh, uh, relative, maybe it could have been his daughter, but they would have said Lisa Madigan. So I'm not sure it was it was a relative of his. Her her power was out. And you see an email uh, from the Madigan relative to Mike McLean saying, just so you know, this, the power's out. And you see McLean forward that to ComEd and then get back to Madigan and say, power should be back on. Like, they are controlling the, the lights, like whether your lights are on. And that's like a lever of political power in Illinois. That is yeah. just so bizarre uh, and, and speaks to like, how systemic it is and i think it would be a mistake to think that that's not still going on currently because there 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 have been some tweaks around the edges by the pritzker administration but there really has not been the the wholesale ethics reform that you would need to just rid the state of that um or get on a path to doing that but i really encourage people to read the reporting because it speaks to the culture in the patronage allegations are pretty amusing as well or disgusting one of the two but, but I mean, people who are absolutely not qualified for the positions for which they're hired who then do no work at all for the paychecks that they get and this is considered a favor to madigan and it's it's kind of mind-boggling I, I can understand using your power as a politician to get someone a job a real job uh, but to get people these do nothing jobs, there was one story having to do with they had a contract with a law firm. It was very uh, it was Victor Reyes's law firm, and they had a deal where he was supposed to get uh, eight hundred thousand dollars a year or something like that. Figure this coming to mind a business every year, uh, guaranteed, which is again a, a really a, a very unusual stipulation in a contract, and yet they were able to get away with this stuff over and over again because everyone was afraid of Madigan, everyone wanted Madigan's favor. And this is the kind of any any crap that Madigan wanted. And I don't even I mean, it's not that not even that many votes. It just seems like he's flexing his muscles or something. Well, I think um, it makes him look like a really nice guy because I didn't see what the upside was for Madigan when he was putting all of these people in peril. Granted, getting them money as well. But it's like if you guys get caught, you're going to jail. Right. In theory. So what does Madigan have to gain by this? What what was the upside for Madigan, fellas, in insisting Madigan wasn't getting the money? These other people were. Why was he doing that? Well, you can tell why ComEd wanted to do it right. So there was, for example, um, some communications revealed about the fact that uh, Alderman Mike Zalewski was going to get one of these or Zalewski. I'm not sure how their names are properly pronounced we'll say zaleski he uh the elder zaleski got a job a no work job essentially for comed and they note 
that the value to ComEd is that his son is the chair of the revenue committee. His his son, state rep Mike Zaleski, is head of the revenue committee. His daughter, Carrie Zaleski, was head of the energy commission appointed by Pritzker. So what happens when you owe someone a favor for your job is that they have the power to take that job away. Um, and that's what Madigan gets out of it. He gets an army, and I use that in quotes. It's not like they're going to go out and shoot somebody for him, but it's an army of people in politically powerful positions who owe everything about their livelihood or their family's livelihood to you. And that's the reason that you do it. And you want ComEd, Com- the reason that Madigan consolidated so much power over the years was that he wanted to be in a position where everybody had to come to him for something, and he was the person in the position, the sole person in the position to give it. And, and of course, the question becomes, well, what is, the, what is the long-term value? And John points out that Madigan was not amassing great wealth over that. I mean, he was he certainly no tag days for him, but he wasn't personally lining his pockets in really conspicuous ways. I don't think that's even that's an allegation against him right now, but that but that he was uh, uh, using his power for nefarious purposes and corrupt purposes, even though it wasn't sort of the classic uh, bribe taking uh, situation that, that we would think of when we think of political corruptions. It's a really the trial has been a really fascinating look at how business got done and may as Austin says may still be getting done in Illinois and and uh I think that the reason you're not I mean it's been on the front page but I think the reason people aren't talking about it is that nobody really knows the comment for I mean news geeks can name them probably Jay Doherty and and what how you say last name uh Parmesan. From, 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 yeah, uh, and 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 that that group of uh, McLean and but those are those are inside baseball names. No one is uh, no one's following this trial yeah. the way we follow, let's say, the Blagojevich trial or the George Ryan trial. That that has to be someone a little bit more prominent. And uh, we're going to see that next year, I think. Although there is that possibility that Madigan is is now he's been gone for two years now, more than two years, and by next year he'll have been gone for three years. And you got to think, and he was, ne- and he was never a figure like Blagojevich. Blagojevich would still, if he were on trial again for some other nefarious thing that he might have done, he would still get covered because he's Rod Blagojevich. He's su- he was such a character. Madigan was fairly low key. He was a powerful guy, but he wasn't someone who was on all the talk shows or or was saying all kinds of wild things. Uh, so I don't know. I just don't know how how engaged the public's going to be next year at this time when the presidential campaign is in full swing are people going to be glued to the mike madigan trial coverage i don't know well i'm not a geek for that stuff but i'd love he wouldn't take the stand he wouldldn't take the stand would he because i'd love to hear him testify in his own oh, defense that'd be great tv okay oh, and i would man. also love to just i think it would be very interesting to hear how he pulled the strings who was answering to who just how he did it you don't think that sells, huh, Eric? I'm not convincing anybody that this is going to be Rock'em Sock'em Radio or TV. Well, I think people kind of just shrug and say, well, that's Chicago politics for you. It just confirms what I thought, right? It confirms what I thought or what I know. And I think when you have a mayor's race going on, and like you said, 2024, we're going to have a presidential contest going on. And, uh, you know, DNC might be here in Chicago and RNC looking like it's in Milwaukee. Yeah, I think the, the news real estate is going to be tough for it to break through. I think part of it is... I'm not sure that our media has, has done a good enough job, or at least I'd say broadcast media has done a good enough job explaining why it matters to the general audience. Um, and if people don't see why it matters, they're not going to care as much. Yeah, I think there's a sort of a three-step process that just engenders apathy 
and disillusionment among people in Chicago and Illinois. And the three-step process is step one, everything's corrupt. Step two, there's nothing we can do about it. Step three is like a big shrug. Like everybody's like, "Eh? what do we do? And the Madigan stuff to me just speaks to the fact, like the reason that I care so much about a constitution for Chicago, a city charter for Chicago is because you shouldn't have the law of man governing everything. You need some higher form of law that a Madigan is subject to that a J.B. Pritzker is subject to, that anyone in political power has to live within, has to live within those confines. And all of us, taxpayers, citizens, people of Illinois and Chicago, can sue to compel compliance with. That's what the real amazing thing about a constitution is. And Illinois' constitution is very, very weak uh, and not well written. Um, And Chicago doesn't even have one. So uh, that, in a lot of ways is the kind of thinking that I think needs to change in Chicago is that, okay, we're going to get the corrupt guy. We're going to get the bad guy. We're going to tell everybody they're corrupt. Uh, and then they're out. So we've solved it. That does not work. Hmm. We've been doing that for, for 50 years. Do other big cities have constitutions, LA, Atlanta, New York, Miami, every, every single big city in the top 15 has a city charter with the exception of Indianapolis, which has a very bizarre thing called Unigov. So it's a county and city government that's together. Every other big city has had a charter. Um, most of them have had charters for over 100 years. Hmm. Just Chicago does not. By the way, the idea that we just shrug and say, well, there's nothing you can do about it is sort of the reaction I've been getting. On the radio this week after a sh- another mass shooting, at this time at a school in Nashville, Three adults and three nine-year-olds were killed. We're all probably up to speed on the story generally. One of my points I've been trying to make on the radio this week is this all sounds so familiar, and pretty soon it's going to cycle out of the news, and another one will come along, and that's what we do and have been doing since Columbine, for crying out loud. But I said, don't stop complaining. Don't stop having this. If this sounds redundant, nothing's going to change if you stop. So go ahead and say we need gun law changes. Go ahead and say Republicans need to get out of the back pocket of the NRA. Go ahead and continue to say, if not this one, then the next one. Maybe at some point it'll tip, and maybe this one isn't the one that's going to do it either. Even though we're, what is it, 130 now mass shootings in America this year alone. Ten of the 12 deadliest mass shootings in America have been done with AR-15s. Nine-year-olds we're talking about, and then some 60-year-olds. But just keep throwing it against the wall. I mean, you just got to keep fighting the good fight. I don't know what the resolution to this is, but I'll tell you one thing that is not, and that's not more guns in the schools, which has come up this week. Some of my listeners said, well, I'll bet those teachers wish they had guns in that school. And I've heard from teachers who say, no, I do not. One other thing for you guys to just consider. Did you see the Washington Post article and sort of digital video they produced that shows the damage that a bullet from an AR-15 does? It's not bloody. You don't see human beings. But it is devastating how it shows the body going, the bullet going through a human body. And then the damage that it does, the ricochet, the splintering, the flattening of the shell itself. And it's very informative because you realize how more than destructive an AR-15 can be. I mean, it's it obliterates the bodies, particularly of of smaller bodies. Well, it was it was very interesting, John. I did I looked at that very carefully, and they show one thing. I mean, they use mannequin type 
figures yeah. and they show the bullet and, and they show what an AR-15 bullet does with its higher velocity and its tumbling quality yeah, exactly. as it enters the body. And then they show what like a handgun, just a, a, a normal bullet from a handgun does. And the difference is just vast in terms of the destruction that it, that it does. They also, I thought was very illustrative, was they showed individual cases of students who were shot at, I think, were they both at... at at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas? Um, no, well, maybe one was Uvalde and one was, anyway, there were two, there were two, there were two <clears throat> and they just showed the bullet wounds, you know, just graphically showing where the bullet entered and how it broke apart and the damage that each little fragment did as it traveled through the body. And the bones do, oh, no, too. I, no, I think one was, one was, uh, was um, Newtown and one was, one was Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Okay. And, and they were, they were, and it's just horrifying what those, what those bullets did. And yeah, you know, I mean, I think some ways we think, well, a bullet just goes right through your body. Yeah, but exactly. These bullets just they just explode the body inside the body, and the, and doctors, emergency room doctors who've treated these these patients will talk about how it's just there's nothing to fix. They'll open up a body, and it'll just be like complete destruction in there, and there's nothing they can do. Yeah. Uh, and you know, but I, you know, I don't know the answer. I, I I've said before on this podcast that that. Uh, that after after Newtown, I, I, twenty children were killed and those, and what six or seven adults and and nobody did anything. I just kind of gave up on gun control. You said, you know, don't give up, don't give up, and I hear you on that. But you know, I I can't read another editorial, another column, yeah, another another hand another thoughts and prayers. I I it's I don't think there's any political will for it in this country right now. And, and I do, though, Eric. You do think there's political will for it. There's a lot of political will for it. It's just not – politicians are not heeding Not among, not among the politicians. Among <laughs> well, the that's public, true. But that's it, isn't public, it? There seems to be. Yeah, well, okay, but I, I don't know that those are that far apart. I mean, it's, uh, at some point, don't you think those dots will connect? I mean, they have to. It's just taking a long, it's just taking a long time. I think, I think – I'm with you, John. I think that you know, MLK had this quote. The, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. I think eventually, you know, people will at the ballot box look at who is prioritizing gun safety and who isn't. And because we're seeing majority of Americans want rational gun reform and, gun, you know, some, some changes to the gun laws. And we're just not seeing it. We're seeing defiant senators and congressmen when it comes to it. Yeah. So I think the more we see stuff like this happen and the more that we cry out, hey, we got to do something about this. I think eventually something happens. I mean, the issue is it just keeps happening at such a rapid rate. And it's just tough to wait till the next election and the next election and the next five elections for that change to come. It's it's very slow to happen, as most most change is, honestly. Um, but I, I like that you're saying, hey, we need to not despair. We have to keep our heads up and keep fighting. And we have to keep saying this is a problem. We have to keep highlighting how this is a uniquely american crisis no other major country has a mass shooting issue like we do australia britain new zealand canada all of them they enacted gun measures so that this stuff doesn't happen we should be able to do the same and we don't we just we choose not to act and we're seeing kids die because of it and that washington post piece incredible piece of journalism but i'm just so dismayed and and really just let down that we even need it that it takes something like that to try to rationalize people that kids are getting gunned down. This is bad. Um, it's frustrating. But I do think eventually there will be change. The, the tough part is it's just not coming soon enough. We need action 
immediately. And unfortunately, there are what 300 million AR-15s or something, some incredible like that uh, that are out there, and every day there are more and yeah. more. And and when right. we get when we ever get even close to to controlling them somehow, the sales go through the roof. Yeah, this is right. That many yeah. people hold hold quite That's dear, a good and, it's, point. and it's and it's it's very true that ninety nine point nine percent of people who own those guns use them for blinking tin cans or shooting varmints on their property or just you know keeping them in a closet for the feeling of protection that it gives them, and a very 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 small number of people use them for ill, but but boy when they do use them for bad purposes the stories are horrible. I, just, I think. I, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, bro. Well, I'm just going to say I'm just. Who needs an AR-15? I I know people that hunt. I have uncles that hunt. They don't use AR-15s. It just doesn't seem like a practical weapon for hunting. Uh, you're just going to shoot off multiple rounds and to completely destroy a deer? Like I, I, It doesn't make much sense when I hear the, the refrain, oh, it's for hunting, blah, blah, blah. Who's using that for hunting? What practical use is there for an AR-15 if not for war and for death and destruction? That's literally what it's for. I, I just I don't see the point. I really don't. There's other there's other guns out there you can use if you want to hunt or take down something that's in your yard or something. Multiple rounds out of a, a high magazine thing like an AR-15. Why do you need that? Why why would you need that as a citizen of the United States? I don't get it. To Eric's point, where the rubber meets the road on this issue is that there are millions of these weapons in the U.S. today, and that really, when researchers looked at okay, when we had an assault weapons ban from 94 to 2004, why was there no difference in mass shootings and violent crime? And one Mm. of the reasons is these, these weapons exist in mass in the U.S. today. And I don't think even the most staunch gun control advocates would like to, to live in a place where somehow those weapons are like repossessed or, or taken in or made illegal or you're coming after the people who have those. Um, I don't think anyone wants that. But I think a different approach is necessary because the knee-jerk reaction to this is assault weapons ban every single time, and it goes nowhere. And the the solution that I keep thinking of is something related to the liability of the actual gun owner. Um, I've not seen, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but in the reporting of this tragedy, where this person got these weapons, but if they got them from someone who owned them, who wasn't taking care of them, who, who, uh, through negligence or lack of safety allowed these to get into the hands of the wrong person, that person should be held responsible for that. Well, these um, guns were purchased they, they, legally. They are complicit. But the yes, guns in this shooting were legal. By the shooter? That's my understanding. Okay. Yeah. So when I didn't know that. So I, I do think when you talk about the, proliferation of assault weapons it's sort of pandora's box these weapons exist and will exist for the rest of our lifetimes in our country right it's more about assigning responsibility uh for their use and then i think also the other thing and i was thinking about this in the wake of um the highland park shooting which i don't know about you guys but that is it's crazy to think that that was less than a year ago yeah um that seems like three or four years ago now. Um, But in that case, and it seems like in this case, again, a young person who is clearly living in a psychological hell evident to everyone around them and did not get the help or support that they needed. And 
I think too oftentimes we can look to government for the solution to these things when oftentimes the most valuable action we can take as individuals relates to actually reaching out to those people who we see that are that are in trouble or that are struggling with with some kind of mental health crisis. Yeah, um, that young yeah that young man's father is has been charged with uh, assisting in pr- the purchase of the weapons. I, I, it seems like a fairly shaky legal theory at this point. And there's also the uh, that family in the, the Crumleys is that their name the the, uh, the family in the Detroit area with the kid who they were uh, help, helping him either get ammunition or his weapons and they didn't adequately control him and i think they're being charged as well there is some some movement toward accountability like that but uh but you know uh, unfortunately austin is right that you can't we're not going to put the genie back in the bottle with all these weapons that are out there and that the more we try the more people are going to buy them up and hoard them and you know one of the things that i think about is that it would be a really good idea to limit the the, the magazine capacity of these of these weapons to so say okay you know you could you can shoot you know ten bullets at a time but that's it then you got to reload slow people down a little bit in situations like that make it make these mass shootings a little bit more difficult I also don't have any problem at all with registering these weapons and making sure that people we know where they are and who has them to treat them more like automobiles like you got to be licensed to have one uh, I know that this drives people crazy and they think that it's the government coming together but. But to circle back a little bit to what Brandon was saying about these are weapons for war, for hunting people and so on, that's that's not a bug. That's a feature for a lot of people who have them. But they are genuinely worried that the government is going to come and seize their property, seize their seize their guns, uh, take their women folk. I don't know what they what they think, but they they do see they do see these weapons as as guardians of their freedom as, as and they see themselves as part of like a citizen militia that keeps the government in check. So the idea that these are weapons of war is the point, right? Yeah, but who said that mindset has to win? So why does that have to prevail? I mean, that's not going to happen. That's not it. And they can genuinely think that. But why do I have to defer to that? How about they defer to me? Frankly, Eric, I don't even care if we did have a confiscation or buyback program. Austin brought that up a minute ago. And he said nobody wants to go there. I wouldn't well, buy buyback is a lot different than confiscation. Either way, I don't care if we came in the dark at night and stole them from you. I know I'm being radical there, aren't I, Austin? But I mean, yes, <laughs> yes <you are. laughs> well, and there goes your bid for public office. John. I'm fine. Actually, I think I could get elected. I'm telling you, there's more people that think like me. <laughs> Truly, there is. Yeah. I mean, this idea I'm that okay, there's yeah. no political will for that. Yes, there is. It's just not with the politicians. Everybody is so pissed off about this and angry about this. And even if it was not all that effective, if we just did something about the AR-15s, these weapons that, like Brandon says, you don't have to have, the government's not coming for you. And if they are, go get your musket. It's no panacea. We'd still have suicide by guns. We'd still have uh, hand. We'd have handguns, people shooting each other out of cars in Chicago. But I would feel really good about our will, our ability, if we did something about those damn AR-15s. Yeah, well, I suppose one thing that people are going to tell you is that the uh, in terms of the actual number of dead bodies associated with with these weapons, the AR-15s, these assault-style weapons, these military-style weapons, are, are really fairly minor in terms of the damage they do that by far more people are murdered and commit suicide with handguns that the body count for the, the handguns are, is much much higher than these than these cosmetically 
horrible weapons. Yeah, and it's an act of terror on the country, too, right? So maybe the body count isn't as high, but do you look two ways now when you go to a parade? Do you look two ways now when you're in a crowd? So, Austin, just because you and I don't seem to be on the same page entirely on this, what direction then should we go? Like, what do you think is the most hopeful thing for us to even lean into? I think liability is something that has broad support and isn't as alienating of an issue. Now, does that mean the NRA is going to get behind it? Probably not. But there is cross, um, cross-partisan cross or whatever, cross-ideological you mean boundaries. mean like insurance? Uh, support liability? of that. Something like, well, more so like legal liability for the crimes committed with weapons that, that are in your ownership. Um, so I, I think that's basically it. And that's why I don't love um, knee-jerk partisan responses like we saw. However true you may think that they are, like are hearing. not helpful. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Are not helpful in ultimately set getting a solution for that, I don't think. And the proof of that is in the last... 20 years of this debate. Well, there are some other uh, controversies in the news, but these are the ridiculous where this has been the tragic and the sublime. But I did want to bring three stories up in rapid fashion. There are some outright silly controversies in the news this week as well. Number one, a Wisconsin school administration has cut a Miley Cyrus Dolly Parton song from a children's Mother's Day performance. The song is Rainbow Land. Since rainbows are synonymous with the LGBTQ plus community, the school said that the lyrics could be deemed controversial by some. So the song has been cut. We're talking about first graders who should not sing, according to Waukesha County School. Wouldn't it be nice to live in paradise where we are free to be exactly who we are? Living in a rainbow land where you and I go hand in hand. I believe we can start living in a on like that. Some of the parents objected to that, and the school said, okay, they can't sing that. It's not the end of the world. Some of these other issues are. But it is sort of a a reminder of some of the cultural battles that are taking place out there. Eric, I'm going to make you the school superintendent there. Um, do the kids get to sing that song or not? Yes, they do, and I tell the parents to go pound sand. That's no. what Superintendent Zorn says. <laughs> you know, it's like... You know that is not. It's not an explicit song. It's a song about acceptance, and and uh, kids can make of it what they will. I don't know the song. It's, is it popular? Is it a song that that I should know if I were at all in tune with popular culture? Or um, I I I searched I so. it and I listened to it. It's not a big hit for either of them, but <clears throat> it's a song that's that these two ladies, uh, that Miley Cyrus and Dolly Parton recorded. And by the way, it's, sound, it's very easy to sing. You can imagine when you hear it, it's like it's a small world. You can just hear kids singing these innocent lyrics easily, and it would sound swell. End of story. But because of the association, some people think there's something a little subversive here. Some people meaning, I think, three parents in the district. And if I was in the room when they were coming up with this and they said, okay, we're going to do this song, I would say, I love this song. It's a great message. Kids will be able to sing it. And they won't get any subtlety if there's some politics at play here. But I'm going to warn you right now, somebody else will, and we're going to have hell to pay for this. So we can fight this fight. But then I like you, Eric. I would have said, okay, 
Now, you all have to go pound sand. You get to be unhappy. You can write letters to the editor. I don't know what you're going to do, but I, but I would have warned them that this is going to come up. Austin, uh, I just fired Eric. Uh, you're now the school board, uh, whatever, chair. What are you going to do? Super? <laughs> I'm remembering in, I think, middle school, I had to be in chorus, and we were singing like I think we sang like Hotel California or something like that. Just like so, like popular songs that are all like about, uh, you know, horrible, th- like addiction and drugs and like hedonism and horrible things. Like, I just don't. This is such a waste of time. And particularly because if you're in, imagine if as a state, we had to decide upon like the 10 songs that are like, we want all the kids singing these songs in first grade. It's impossible. Like no one's ever going to agree about it. And that is one of the, and guess what? There are going to be some schools where it's like, all we're going to sing are church hymns. There's going to be other songs where it's like, all we're going to sing is top 40. And I think that is the only long-term solution to this, and it's not going to be fair to everyone. There's going to be schools that are doing some crazy stuff. There's going to be some schools that are doing stuff exactly how you like it. But I just don't think there's a way that a, a state or like even a local government is going to be able to, to to solve this issue without just like a decentralization of of education. I think it's just going to be this stuff over and over again. What books are in the library? What songs are we singing? You know, what things like that. And I just don't think democracy is well suited to solve that that problem, unfortunately. But it is like, Brandon, isn't it? The books in schools where in Florida they want to empower the parents to veto what maybe the school board or the teacher wants to do. And I, I don't think we have to listen to every angry parent. I don't even think they're qualified to pick the books in the schools, let alone the songs in the choir. For first graders, Brandon... I mean, most of them can't read. I Look, the culture wars <laughs> have gone on steroids at this point. And it's so frustrating because you have, you know, people who claim they're fighting for liberty and prosperity and free choice, literally constricting people's liberty, prosperity and free choice by trying to just, like, like Austin said, what are you going to do? Have us have 10 songs we have to choose from? Like, if everything is the same, we're just stuck in this little box of what we can do, and then all these things we can't, it just makes no sense. Um, I remember when I was a kid, we were doing uh, the song No Scrubs by TLC uh, for like a school for like a, a school How's that presentation. Go? How's that go? Give me a little of that. Uh, I don't want no scrubs. A scrub is a guy that can't get no uh, love from me. Sitting on the passenger side in my best friend's ride, trying to get back at me. Like, but it's all about like. That's a song you, the grade schoolers in your school sang. Well, that's the thing. Should we have been singing it? Probably not. <laughs> but we did, and the teachers were like, "Oh yeah, that's nice. We love it. We love it. This is cool." There wow. were no upset parents. Where were the just, pa- where were the parents when this was happening? They were scrubs. <laughs> the parents were being they were scrubs, and they were just being adults who actually have jobs and lives and don't really <laughs> obsess about every little tiny thing. So I I just think the whole thing's ridiculous, and I'm I'm concerned that we are reaching a point where we're not allowing people to have freedom of thought and expression anymore because of this side that wants to constrict and suppress and say, hey, you can only think of things in this box. It's not right, and I hope that I hope it changes. Austin just had to click out. He was 
up to his one hour, and he had to be in another meeting, but <laughs> which is too bad because there's also the story out of a, a different school. This one's in Florida. They forced an instructor out. Her crime was showing kids the image of the David, the nude Michelangelo statue. It was part of an art class and had been done before at that school. But a few parents complained this time. One called it pornographic, and so the teacher has lost her job. The kids were shown an image in an art book of the David, and as a result, lost her job. So I guess everything you just said times a thousand, Austin, would that be, or, or Brandon, uh, times a thousand, maybe? We can't show people art anymore? We can't show them pornography. That's not, but David isn't pornographic. He's just naked, and there, and there are all kinds of cherubim and seraphim that have their <clears throat> little little uh parts showing too in old artworks and and how old are these kids uh, first what grade was this oh, uh, oh well in this case the the uh, david kids were in sixth grade Six, i mean every sixth grader i'll bet with a smartphone and that's probably about half of them uh, <laughs> is probably seen the most awful graphic porn that you could imagine because it's all on their phones right they've seen and worse the, for sure they can scroll through the, twitter and see worse and the idea <laughs> yeah exactly and the idea that that uh that, that this is so and, and the thing is i i can i can maybe say okay in sixth grade we're not going to show this particular we're not going to show any nudity in art fine to fire the teacher over it i mean that's crazy that is insane that they that they, it's a career ending or a job ending offense by this teacher you know, if if this teacher I was it a woman, I don't even know, but if this teacher had, if she had uh, persistently refused to disobey to obey the principles, yeah, I was looking for some other they, history here, but that does not appear to be the case. I mean, it's a female, and um, in fact, the mayor of Florence has invited her to come to Florence just to sort of show appreciation for her, you know, appreciation of what art well, is. That. I love that. So at least you got a trip to Italy out of it. And then one final controversy, gentlemen. It's over the pronunciation of G-E-T-H-S-E-M-A-N-E. Here in Chicago, we know the Gethsemane Garden Center. Gethsemane. It's a word in the Bible and stuff. Uh, yeah. On Jeopardy, that Gethsemane would have been the right answer. Uh, one contestant did not pronounce the N at the end. Bible 1600. After the Last Supper, Jesus traveled to this garden to pray and was arrested there. Kevin. What is the Garden of Gethsemane? And so his answer was deemed incorrect. He said Gethsemane. And like, like, like Gethsemane Sam? Like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the next contestant pronounces it with a more pronounced N at the end of the word. Tamara. What is Gethsemane? Yeah, we just needed the N, just a knee. That's correct. But she said it with a soft G. She said Gethsemane, and Ken Jennings said she was right, and it cost him the match, and she wins the money. And my, this is a this is just my little complaint about Jeopardy. If they don't spell it exactly right, but especially if they don't pronounce it exactly right, but you know they have that fact loaded up, right? Gethsemane or Gethsemane is the right answer. You just, I mean, you knew of it. You knew you knew that fit there, but you didn't say it right. I always say, Eric, it's not a pronunciation show. It's a knowledge show, and you had the knowledge. Right. I, I agree with you. I think this has happened on Jeopardy before yes. where someone has mispronounced something or dropped a letter, and yep. they clearly knew the answer and and didn't 
ah, boy, I'm, I'm just seem to remember that that the show invited both contestants back, that they gave them a redo on it. And that's certainly what they ought to do here is say, look, this is a debatable decision made on the spot by our judges. We regret the confusion. We're going to invite, you know, at least the contestant who lost will invite that contestant back yeah, for, right. another, for yeah. another shot. If they do that, I mean, what else can they do? Their, their mistakes are going to be made, especially when the show is, is being taped in real time like that. So I mean, I like unless that. they need to huddle before the show, like if they drop one letter, then it's not right. But but clearly, when they, when they clearly know the answer and they're either they don't pronounce it correctly because they don't know how to pronounce it or because they're on TV and they're a little nervous and they mm-hmm. slur a couple of letters together – uh, that seems that's way too picky, and the person deserves another chance. I I am with John Williams here. Jeopardy is broken. I think the Jeopardy system <laughs> is completely broken, and everyone's so concerned about mayors races and you know it, income inequality and all these comments. And it's like the real crisis is Thank you. A, an American institution of knowledge and learning has been completely jeopardize oh nice so, oh. <laughs> see what i did a, there you, so yeah i want to see reform because i'm with you we, we are wrapping this podcast up and we're watching the video of brandon walking down a hall right now where are you going brandon i am going to be going to the chicago bulls game versus the los angeles lakers tonight so oh excellent about to see lebron go off for let's hope 35 maybe 40 points how excited are fun. you seeing how excited are you for seeing Bronny and lebron on the floor at the same time the father son in the nba how awesome would that I'm, be it would be awesome but i'm not i'm not too convinced that it's going to happen i i don't know how much longer lebron has and i'm also not sure that this man is going to go to the orlando magic or whatever team that's subtracting Bronny james just because his son is there, so uh, we're going to see. <laughs> is, did did Bronny get did Bronny get drafted in the NBA? Because he he's like a freshman in college, or what? Is he's his got like a is? year. He's got like a year or two before he even. Well, he played in the McDonald's All American game on TV last night, so that makes him a high school senior, and okay. he's everybody says legit. But you're right. You've got the dad aging and the son not that old yet. If they didn't play on the same team, I'd still like to see him on the floor at the same time. It might even be more fun to see him on different teams in the same game. But I'm I'm hoping the, I'm hoping the stars line up for that. You have a good time tonight, Austin. I keep calling Austin. you Austin. You I don't know Austin. why. Because Austin <laughs> you know, and Brandon sound the same. Brandon, well, we they look so and, familiar. And they, look, and they so look similar, alike. right? They really look alike. Hey, I know. I, speaking I, of guys with massive beards, have we discovered yet who wins the uh, the reader April, poll? The April April sixth reader poll. I know Brandon's Brandon's cleared his schedule for his acceptance <laughs> speech or his con- or his concession speech. <laughs> he's written he's written both, you know, so he's ready to go. All right, I guys. Can't wait. We'll let you go, Brandon. Thanks for it is Brandon, right? It's Brandon, Brandon. <laughs> thank you for it is, it is. for joining us. This other guy, Austin, who doesn't look like Brandon, has already clicked out, and maybe I should too. Eric Zorn, thanks for being part of the podcast as always. We're produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman, and I'm Jim Williams. We'll drop another podcast on you next week. See you guys. I got too many Austins and Brandons in my world. All right, thank you, fellas. See you guys later. See you, Z. Bye.
subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com.